0: Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Samantha Boardman is a clinical instructor in psychiatry and an attending psychiatrist at Weill Cornell Medical College. She received her BA from Harvard, her MD from Weill Cornell Graduate School of Medical Sciences, and an MA in Applied Positive Psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. This is her second appearance on our podcast. She's also spoken at our Landmark Revitalized event back when we did events, and is a lovely human being whom Colleen and I consider a friend. She's here today to chat about her new must-read book, Everyday Vitality, and I am so thrilled to have her back on the show. Samantha, welcome. Hi. So I loved your book. It's been a long time coming, but it's the perfect book at the perfect time. And I think you can help so many people. And I'm going to start with the title. I thought it was so interesting. It's everyday vitality. You could have said everyday happiness, everyday joy. There's so many different titles you could have went with. I'm very curious. Why vitality?
1: Well, it was a word that would, to me, capture the the physical and the psychological mental health and something that maybe we don't think about enough, but really is a marker of our everyday health and resilience. And it's really vitality is that positive feeling of aliveness and energy. And I think it's really a cornerstone of our well-being, And when you sort of feel strong in your everyday life that you can manage a lot of like the hassles and a lot of like the irritations and a lot of the difficult sort of challenges that unexpectedly get thrown your way. And vitality to me was something that we weren't talking about enough and that could kind of capture that essence. And I did think about calling it everyday resilience, but to me, vitality was something that was actually at the core of everyday resilience and that unlocks everyday resilience.
0: Got it. And so... You start the book by saying everyone deserves to answer yes to these statements. And I'm going to go through the statements because I thought they were so interesting. So the first one is, I look forward to each day. Then I almost always feel alert and awake. Then I have energy and spirit. Followed by, I feel alive and full of vitality. I thought, again, there's so many directions you could have gone. So could you unpack a little bit of the why behind these four statements?
1: Yeah, I mean, they really come from a vitality index. And, you know, because it is the opposite to me of languishing is when you feel like you have vitality and that if you're answering yes, I feel awake and alive and alert. I'm ready for anything. And that those four questions sort of capture the essence of what it means to feel vital. And we sort of, we know it when we feel it. Like there's that sense of vitality. Like you you also know it when you spot it in somebody else. And I've been increasingly seeing in my practice, a lot of people who maybe didn't qualify for a formal diagnosis of depression or anxiety. They didn't check all the boxes, but they were far from thriving in their lives. And that sort of sense of languishing and just getting by feeling like they're sort of just going through the motions of things. And they weren't by a psychiatric sort of clinical DSM diagnosis, they might not have qualified for a diagnosis of depression, but they definitely were, you know, not doing well in their lives. And it was sort of, is this all that there is going through the motions, really feeling like they were just sort of bystanders and spectators somehow. And to me, vitality was really the antidote for that feeling of languishing that was really apparent in so many people who just felt like they were sort of keeping their heads above water, but getting splashed in the face constantly.
0: So you mentioned getting splashed in the face constantly. I think that point is so interesting. It leads me to my next question. So you say it's not the major life events. I'll say the major life event is drowning, I'll, to, to build, build off your metaphor. But, but it, it's not the major life event like divorce or death you say that everyday stressor getting splashed in the face the micro stressors and you reference this fascinating study out of cal berkeley around micro stressors so can you talk a little bit more about why we need to watch out for these micro stressors and then how do we manage them because they're so difficult to avoid
1: well that's you know what i was really surprised about too in the research we talk a lot about resilience and the, like the good news about resilience is people do seem to be pretty resilient to those major life challenges and actually like our default is resilience. There are people who develop post traumatic stress or people who become depressed, but for the most part people seem to bounce back from those major life challenges. But what the research shows it's actually the little stuff like people who report a lot of daily stress are Then in the moment, they obviously like their heart rate, their blood pressure, physically, they feel less well, mentally, they feel less well, but also, even long term, that they're much more likely to be overweight. They're much more likely to be physically unhealthy, to have cardiac issues, and also to be suffering mentally. So I was really surprised by that because I felt like we have this big R resilience for the big stuff that happens. But it seems that we're lacking that little R resilience for the daily grind, that sort of game of guacamole people are playing all day long with the slings and arrows of what's getting thrown at them. And it was Muhammad Ali who had said, it's not the mountains that wear us out, it's the pebbles in our shoe. And there's even people in terms of their ability to fend off the flu, those who report a great deal of stress, when they're, you know, if you if, for these poor grad students, if you put the flu virus on a Q-tip and you stick it up their nose, if you do it in the middle of exams, they're much more likely to get sick than if you do it right after vacation. So when they're like super stressed out, and again, even when they get the, like the hepatitis vaccine, if you give it to them in the middle of exams, when they're really stressed out and they have a lot of everyday stress versus during vacation, they're, they'll mount a less sort of robust response to the vaccine. So I think that the toll of everyday stress we don't really address enough in our in in my profession and it's something that maybe we need to focus a little bit more on and think about like what are the what balances all these hassles and what about what are the uplifts in our everyday lives that can kind of can create this buffer zone to help us manage them
0: and so something you also talk about in the book and I, I think we're all guilty of i'm guilty of is this idea of okay as soon as x happens or y happens then i'm gonna be good then i'm gonna be in a better place i'm gonna be happy i'm gonna and so on and so forth we all say this at least i say it i think everyone says it um how do we get better here and i think For me, it's particularly challenging if you're ambitious, if you believe in goal setting, you have milestones you want to hit and you say, I want to get here and then I can do X or Y, but it's not so good. So how do we get better?
1: Well, I think like we're, as I say, like we have, I see a lot of patients and I know a lot of people, I mean, included like as soon as lives, like, and we think once I do this, then I'll do that. And sort of the waiting that's constantly built into that. And especially like, I think with the pandemic, people were like, well, as soon as it's done, I'm going to do this or as soon as this. And I think what we're really beginning to understand is how do we live well within it? And what are those things we can do in an everyday way even to live well within our everyday stress? And I think our coping um strategies are often so undermining to what makes us feel strong. And we usually even know better. And that's what I find is so baffling about all of us and me included is I know that I'll feel better if I do X, but I'm, most likely I'm going to do why. And those sort of like immediate, like sort of stress relievers that are actually vampires of vitality most of the time that we're, that are actually sucking us in and sucking us away from others and all those things that actually give us that strength in our everyday ways. So even in the pandemic now, like working with patients thinking, what are you doing right now? Instead of that as soon as thing, what are you looking forward to this week? How do you want to feel when you come back in and see me next week? So really kind of embody their values in their everyday way and in, in not waiting for that sort of, because built into that waiting period. And every time we're sort of moving the gold posts is actually a lot of stress because I think when we're sort of that inertia kicks in and we're sort of anxious that we're, we're not doing the things that we love doing. And we're also clipping our wings to find those uplifts in our everyday lives then.
0: So you mentioned seeing patients in the pandemic. I'm curious What are you seeing a lot of in those patients right now? What are people struggling with and what do you find yourself talking about?
1: You know, I was surprised a lot, especially in the beginning, patients who I'd been treating for anxiety, who had strategies around how to manage their anxiety. I was worried about them and they were doing actually remarkably well. And they said, hey, I've been waiting for this all my life. And they were actually they were like, I'm prepared. I've got these strategies to deploy. I'm going outdoors. I'm going for a walk. I know whatever their things were. Like I'm meditating, reading, I'm gardening, whatever those things were. And they found themselves being in this position of being advice givers for their friends who had not had that much anxiety in their lives, but suddenly were sort of flooded with this uncertainty. And I I found that to be really interesting. And what was helping them also was being like helpful to people in their lives who really were sort of for the first time, like, wait a minute, what's going on? I have no control over anything.
0: Wow, that is fascinating. And so you mentioned being outdoors and you talk about in the book how spending regular time outdoors is at the top of the list, literally number one to help manage stress, followed by hobbies and then exercise. So can you talk a little bit more about each of those in in your top three?
1: Absolutely, so this was a study looking at people who have a lot of daily stress between Harvard um, and uh, Hopkins, and people say they have a lot of daily stress, what helps them feel better? And 94% of people saying being outside helps them feel better. Well, a Yale study just found that people spend on average, I think, four hours or less outside each week. And then I remember reading that and thinking, well, not me, but then you think about like in the middle of winter, Actually, like if you're driving or getting on the subway and getting off as quickly as you can, that there's you actually aren't spending that much time outside, and it it is truly an uplift. And one of the best things about being outdoors is it interrupts rumination. And rumination is that you know ongoing that ticker tape in your mind of like why did I do that, why did I say that, or what's going to happen next. And when we can't get out of, of of rumination, one of the best strategies to do that is being outside. We also know from research that patients who have a window onto nature recover, you know, more quickly from surgery. They require less pain medication and that people, the natural language studies show that people, when they're in the center of a park, use adjectives that are like in language that's similar to what they use on like holidays, like Christmas. So that there is something I think inherently beneficial about being in nature what's even better than being there by yourself is being there with somebody else and sharing it and also not having your device with you like i'll often i mean i prescribe walks in the park and walks in nature but i really recommend that people leave listen to the mind body green podcast when you're at home but actually not i think when you're in the park don't be on the phone just be paying attention listening to the birds because even a recent study just came out showing that people just listening to the sounds of nature help them feel calmer. And I think we, we underestimate the value of, of that in our everyday life.
0: And what about hobbies and then exercise?
1: Hobbies, you know, it's something that a few years ago I was interviewing somebody, I said, what's your hobby? And she was like, "Do you mean, do I collect stamps? Like it was some like I, like, I felt like I was this aging librarian or something, but how hobbies are probably the purest form of love. And people, there's research from Harvard Business School looking at people who are burned out and feeling stressed out at work. And one of the best interventions from them is not like doing nothing. It's actually working on something that they find value in. And something that you're actually even accepting mediocrity in, that you're just doing for the love of the game and that you love doing. And and not then turning your hobby into a side hustle, because that sort of undermines the beauty and the joy of the hobby in and of itself. And it's a tremendous stress reliever. And you, I think, have the ability to sort of be learning something. That's what puts you in those flow states where you sort of lose a se- lose sense of time. And that engagement and even like hands-on experience is a, just a tremendous uplifter in our everyday lives.
0: And so you mentioned for love of the game. So on a personal note, I'm curious. So I love basketball. I played basketball in college. I love watching basketball on TV, but I'm not really using my hands. I'm not really stimulating myself creatively. Does that qualify?
1: I would say that's not quite a hobby. I mean, for (laughs) it to qualify as a hobby, I think there it can't be quite as passive as that, right? Like there has to be that level of engagement. It probably would even be maybe playing with basketball with a friend on a team and looking at those studies of people who obviously we know it's important to to move physically if we can, but also those who are on a member of a team, like a recreational team or play a sport with a friend. Not only do they have fewer mental health days a month, but they also live longer. As people who played tennis or played on a soccer team or played on a a basketball team. So I think that's sort of a way to think about it. It's good for you. It's even better when you're doing it with a friend.
0: So I'll throw out another hobby, which I know is very popular right now. I think I know the answer, but I'll ask anyway. What about Zillow surfing as a hobby?
1: Oh, my goodness. That's like (laughs) Zillow porn. I mean, that is honestly... It is pure pleasure, but know that that is cotton candy pleasure. But I've got to say, limit it, but I couldn't agree more with you. It's not a hobby, but it's great fun. (laughs) It's It's so much fun.
0: It is. And I think that that's, you know, Zillow porn is definitely having a moment. So exercise.
1: Yes. I mean, it is, you know, when I was in medical school or studying psychiatry, it was not something that anybody ever mentioned as something to lift our moods. It was something that was, oh, the icing on the cake. And the number one mood lifter and something that happens to you in the moment is you automatically, like you feel better. And one thing I'll have patients do sometimes is even write down how they feel beforehand and how they feel afterwards, just to remind themselves that actually this really did help me feel good. But also, I mean, there's studies showing that people who were just asked to walk not that quickly on a treadmill four days a week were it, they felt better who had mild depression, felt better after six weeks, and as well as those who were given medication. And nine months later, they were much less likely to have relapsed. So I think we underestimate how important movement is. Mental health patients apparently feel that they wish their psychiatrist would talk more about their physical health and even recommend or prescribe going to the gym because it does not just only lift you in the moment, you have this sort of longer term boost from it. And if you can do it consistently and just, again, it's not even you, I sometimes call it like not jog bra exercise, like just incidental ambulation, like just moving more in our everyday lives. My office has been on the second floor of a building and there was an exercise studio right next to me and I cannot tell you how many people I would see waiting for the elevator to go up there. And it was like, wait, like there is a staircase right here, like you're going to exercise, and how we sort of engineered so much like out of our lives of being able to move. And we just sort of do it thoughtlessly and being a little bit more conscious about taking the stairs, taking the dog for an extra sort of loop around the block and having a pet, not to mention I'm not also is another uplift in people's stressed out lives.
0: It's so funny you mentioned taking the elevator to the second floor of the gym. It is also a huge pet peeve of mine. And to build off of micro stressors, I'm a huge believer in micro movements. And so for me, like I don't have the time I used to have to go to the gym and I'll do all the things I used to do. So like I, it also helps that I hate elevators, which is another thing, but like I always take this like under 10 floors, I'm taking the stairs. Sometimes you know, that's my workout. I'll try to walk everywhere. I'll try to get outside. And I think you find that all those movements during the day, add up in a big way, whether it's all right, I've been sitting for a half hour, an hour, I got to get around, walk around the hall, just do something, just get up and move because they add up and you'll find that you'll move much more during the day than you would have if you went to the gym for an hour. 100%
1: 100% in people who will, you know, get so stressed out all day long thinking, when am I going to fit this in? And I need that hour on the treadmill or to lift weights. And if you could just build more movement, especially on those days where it's just not going to work and you're not going to make it to the gym, I think that A, you will feel just as good and you're getting the mental and the physical benefits of just moving more. I mean, even taking those skywalks in an airport, not that many of us have been in an airport recently, taking the stairs and not the escalator, just those little micro Movements, as you say, that you're not breaking into a sweat, but actually have tremendous benefit and especially for your body and also just moving itself, like getting up if you've been sitting down for a while and even putting your shoulders back, standing up straight and those like micro movements, even We know from studies, if you just sort of hunch over and almost like assume the position of looking at a phone, that you feel like your mood is a little bit sad, or if you even walk a sad walk versus like walking a happy walk with your shoulders back and your arms swinging and with like a spring in your step, that those are all just immediate mood boosters.
0: Yeah. As from our mutual friend, Dan Butner, those people in the blue zones, they're, they're walking to happy hour with their friends. They're not going to CrossFit. And these are the healthiest people in the world who have incredible health span.
1: Yeah. And they never exercise a day in their lives. Yeah. They just move. It's so like naturally built into their everyday lives. And there are, I think when you start paying attention to those moments of like, wait, the gym's on the second floor if I'm going there or take those stairs and Obviously, it's great when the built environment we live in can encourage that kind of movement. But I think we can be a little bit more conscious about like, no, you don't need to get that parking spot like right in front of the grocery store. Like, what if it's a little bit further away? Like, it's okay, Don't wait for it.
0: So so, something else I thought was fascinating in the book is you you talk about who I am, That, that answer. It's just who I am. And we all tell ourselves stories. And as we get older, we, we, be, we, we become, what's the old phrase, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And we start to accept that as we age. Well, it's just who I am. And it's a statement you say, you hear a lot of our practice. We all hear ourselves saying it, myself. Why is that statement so problematic? And how do we help ourselves evolve? Because it's just who I am is not necessarily a, a good statement for us.
1: Well, I think it implies that, like, the very core of it is like, I'm not changing. This is who I am. And, like, there's, it's very defensive, too. And people often come to therapy with some maybe interest in some change in their lives. But the moment you bump up against, well, what about this or that? Like, well, that's just who I am. And that it's like a retreat into, I think, the corner of don't, don't kind of try to chisel away at these icebergs that I'm clinging on to. And we all have these stories, as you say, that we tell. And this old psychiatrist once had said to me, the purpose of therapy isn't to change your present or to change your future. It's actually to change your past. And I think letting go of that, that story that we all tell is really critical. But then also recognizing that you are changing no matter what. I mean, I think that we're all works in progress who mistakenly think that we're finished. And it's easy to look back and see, wow, I've changed a lot since I was in my early 20s. But it's really hard to imagine how much we're going to change moving forward. But we will. So how can we be a little bit more deliberate about it? And I think when we sort of retreat into that space of I am who I am, we know we're getting defensive. But I think it's we don't realize that these are preferences and habits most of the time when we're saying that kind of thing like that. And we're also, when we refuse to allow the idea that like we are changing and shifting and we wear many hats and we're many different versions of ourselves at all times. We're also then having this very fixed mindset about other people. Like that's just who somebody is like, that's just who they are. And I think we have to be careful. We judge ourselves by what's happening in our heads and we judge others by their actions. I, I cut that person off in traffic because I'm really late and I need to pick up my kid but the person who cut me off must be a real jerk deep down you know so how I think when we even allow the studies looking at looking at students and those who believe in the possibility of people changing, are also much less likely to develop sort of depression and anxiety around school and around other people and when they believe in their own possibility of change and when they believe it in others.
0: And there is a difference or a fine line, if you will, when you're talking about your partner or your spouse or a relative or a friend where you, you know, love someone or accept someone for, for who they are. And trying to change a partner is a losing proposition, I, I think. But we can all be better as partners. I'll also say that. So th- there is a difference, right? In, in like loving and accepting someone for who they are and all of their greatness and not trying to change them with also an understanding that like we can all be a bit better.
1: I think that there's, you know, some research around that as well is accepting people as they are and knowing that you can't change them either is sort of part of that. But also, instead of this idea that we know somebody so well, that our partner is so knowable, like, and we start predicting, oh, he's going to do this, she's going to do that. And and that we have this almost conceit that we know exactly how they're gonna behave in a given situation. And actually research shows that when we allow ourselves to sort of see them as unknowable in a way, and instead of uh, looking for what we know, look for something that's different about them in some way. And Ellen Langer had done this research and she was the first tenured professor, female professor of psychology at Harvard. And she says, nobody's ever come to me after 50 years of marriage and said, I'm bored of my dog or I'm bored of my plant or I'm bored of my kid. But that's because there's an expectation built in of change and that that person's going to do something different or that dog or plant But sometimes with our partners, the ones like we are so close to that we sort of think we know them. And there's some actually beauty in accepting the unknowableness of somebody and actually just priming yourself to look for what's different about that person rather than just sort of retreating into I know who I know what they're going to do. I know the end of this movie.
0: I love that. And so... Something I love about that—I love the book. I'll say it again. And I love all of your anecdotes, all of the research, all the studies. So I'm going to run through a couple of my favorites right now to have you unpack a bit. So I'm going to start with the Fruit Loop experiment. Please tell us about the Fruit Loop experiment.
1: So I—I I, I love this experiment, and it comes from the University of Richmond. So uh, Kelly Lambert, who's there, is she studies rats, and she she calls them her colleagues, and. She's done this fascinating research that when you give a rat a fruit loop, and apparently it's their favorite thing in the world. I mean, maybe we have a lot more in common with rats than we realize, because I know a lot of people who like fruit loops, but... When you give rats a fruit loop and you sort of bury it under their bedding and they have to forage for it and kind of exert effort looking for it. Or when you can just, you could basically hand a rat a fruit loop in your hand and you give it to them. So some have had to work for it. Those are like the worker rats and other ones she called trust fund rats. Like these were the rats who are drinking margaritas, sitting in their hammocks, hanging out and who were handed on a silver tray a fruit loop. So when these groups of rats are re-challenged and they're sort of asked to go through a maze or they're asked to swim, apparently rats can swim, they don't really like to, those trust fund rats just don't persist. Like they've always been handed this 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 fruit loop on a tray and they just don't know how to work for it. Whereas those worker rats who've been sort of challenged in a good way And the way I sort of translate that into human form is when we create desirable difficulty. When we're challenged in a way that we feel that we have the resources to meet that challenge, that it actually feels really good and there's self-efficacy that is engaged in that. And that's where we build resilience. So again, even going back to that idea of like having a hobby or having something that sort of challenges you in a good way, in a desirably difficult way, is probably going to build resources in other domains as well and sort of contribute to resilience in other ways.
0: Marguerite in a hammock sounds very nice to me at the moment, but I, <laughs> I, I hear you. It's fascinating. So another study I thought was fascinating. I believe it's the Ziegernilk. Am I pronouncing that right? The Ziegernilk effect?
1: The, the Zygarnik effect. Zygarnik. It's, it's such a weird thing, but I think we can all relate to this. Is This was done in Vienna and looking at apparently waiters in a cafe who, were, who had a really easy time remembering orders that were sort of half filled. But if you ask them about an order that had been fully completed, that they had no memory of what the people had, like did they have two cappuccinos and a croissant or what did they have? Like they could have no memory. So it really speaks to this idea that we have this, our attention focuses on what's sort of half finished and even what's on, what's negative and what's undone. And I think we're almost like the deer in the headlights, but we're, it's why at the end of the day, you're able to think about all the things you didn't do, but you cannot, you know, you if you you actually wrote down like, wait, I accomplished this, I did that, I checked that off my to-do list. We're terrible at giving ourselves any credit for that because we don't even remember it. So I think we have to be a little bit more deliberate about like, actually, what have I done? Because we are primed for the negative and maybe that was helpful to us when we were being chased by saber-toothed tigers long ago, but it's not so helpful anymore when we just don't even acknowledge what we've accomplished and what's good.
0: And what about whoop, W-O-O-P, whoop goals?
1: So I love this research. It comes out of NYU and Gabriel Otengen. And she looks at how do we close the intention action gap? And she is not American. When she came to America, she's like, what is all this positive thinking? I don't think it's so helpful. And it turns out when people who are just sort of daydreaming and their positive thinking, like maybe I'll win the lottery, or maybe I'll get a you know A in math, but I'm just going to think about it and not doing anything about it. It's actually more demoralizing and sort of undermining when what we sort of hope for and daydream about doesn't come to be. And so that, that whole idea of positive thinking isn't very effective. If it's just in your head, it's not going to happen in the world. So how do we close that intention action gap? And it's through whoop goals, W-O-O-P. And the W stands for your wish. Like, I wish I would not look at my phone as much or whatever. And then the first O is what would be the outcome of that? How would I feel? Like I'd feel closer to my kids or I'd feel like less distracted. Okay, and then the next O is then what is that obstacle? What's getting in the way of you doing that? Maybe it's because it's always on the table or whatever. And then your P of the W-O-O-P, the P is what is your plan? what are you going to do about that? Like, maybe I'm going to leave it in the other room. Maybe I'm going to turn it off. And that those are sort of ways to be more intentional about closing that intention action gap and feeling less like a tumbleweed in your everyday life.
0: So you mentioned that the goal of not looking at your phone so much, which brings me to comparison, social media. Why is comparison so bad? What role does social media play here? And I'm curious as a parent, how do you think about this? Because I, I, my kids aren't—they're they're too young for it. But I'm just to me, it's a recipe for disaster.
1: Well, there's there is some research too. Comparison can be helpful in the same way stress can be helpful. Like not all stress is bad. Not all social comparison is bad. If you're running a race and this person run, runs like a second faster than you do, that can actually get you to run faster, or work harder, or train more. But it's when it's sort of, I think with social media is that you're just seeing these completely unattainable goals and you're taking, you're seeing it as reality. And what we know is it takes about 17 seconds for a young woman to look at social media and not feel badly about her life. There's more perfectionism, I think, in our lives. We have these higher standards for ourselves, but also we have more perfectionism around like our social lives. And Wait now. Not only do you know that your ex boyfriend, not only have you broken up, but you know maybe he's at another party with somebody else in Mexico or something. So you're you're just getting bombarded by things that make you feel bad. And I always advise people like just don't post stuff that might make somebody else feel bad in some way. But we know though, and it's becoming increasingly apparent that young women are especially affected by this. And. I think Jonathan Haidt, who's been looking into this, and he thinks he he really recommends that families not give daughters phones and have that ability to be on TikTok or Instagram until they're in high school. But you can't have your child be the only one left out. Like it has to be like a sort of agreed upon norm in the whole class. And good luck doing that. I've got a thirteen year old, so it's something that i really missed the boat on but i it is i think deeply concerning we're seeing an uptick in depression and anxiety in young girls and even like children as young as 10 with eating disorders and even body dysmorphic disorders coming in to seeing wanting to go to see plastic surgeons wanting to look at like that filtered version of themselves and they're calling it snapchat dysmorphia but i think it's really concerning and Girls especially feel really badly. And I think just by like just delaying the time until you give them the phones is probably most helpful, but it's only if you can get other people on board with it.
0: And I just want to, this was just so startling. Did you say it takes 17 seconds for a woman to feel poorly?
1: So like my body doesn't look like that. I wasn't invited there. And it's just the only filter is if, and I think this is important for women to think about whenever you're leafing, like you're thumbing through social media, when with people are primed with the information like this isn't real. This is a curated version of somebody's life. As long as you're sort of looking at all of that with that lens, it's helpful in that sort of self, like when you're just feeling badly about yourself. And just always, like, I think if anybody has daughters or just for yourself, looking through that, just reminding yourself, like, this isn't real. This is somebody's version of themselves and it's choreographed and put up there. And it's helpful, but look, it it takes a real toll on ourselves, on everybody. And even with all the news these days, it's really overwhelming, like hearing about what's going on in the world. And people are really stressed out about it. And it's hard not to, I think we're all like, we have news FOMO, like, oh, I don't want to miss out on the latest headline. And if I doom scroll for the next hour, I'm going to find out more information than any news source. And I think we have this like illusion of being able to do that. And It makes us feel worse. We don't get digested information when we're doing that. And we typically actually don't even develop more knowledge or understanding of what's going on. And so an interesting study was looking at how do you make news less overwhelming for people? Because sometimes it's just numbing and paralyzing. And one thing is just to make sure you have some positive emotion around whatever you're looking at, because apparently that is what enables us to learn from news and feel like less overwhelmed and paralyzed by it
0: and the other wrinkle on the news front is, it, it trying to decipher what's real what isn't what is unbiased what's biased and it's quite tricky with every publication right now with
1: everything <laughs> absolutely
0: so something else that's you know concerning for me is the loneliness epidemic and you know you say that People can have numerous daily interactions with people and still feel lonely. I thought that was fascinating. So what can we do better in our everyday interactions to, to avoid this? How do we better communicate with our barista, with family, with friends, with coworkers? What can we do better?
1: Yeah you know, I think we all know that it's important to get enough sleep and to exercise or eat right, but probably the most reliable contributor to our well-being is our social connections. And so how do we do that better? And research shows that not all social interactions are created equal. And I had, during the pandemic, I think people were longing, all they were thinking about is how can I connect again? And in June, when people were feeling safer, I had a patient who just went whole hog and was saying yes to everything, but found herself so depleted and exhausted by it. And really with that like social hangover from doing things. But we know from research that the, the two most like valuable interactions are when we have meaningful conversations with somebody, and also the experience of felt love, like feeling like you're understood, that somebody that you're cared about. So having frequent positive interactions with other people who you feel that also care about you in some way is essential. And so how do you create environments to have meaningful conversations? It's really by paying attention, by saying, it's like getting that phone out of the way, just those three words, tell me more you know, and giving sort of something and bearing witness. And usually good conversations involve more listening than talking. And I think even with kids, it's usually in the car. So I've got a rule actually in the car is like no, no cell phones in the car. If we're driving somewhere, talk to me. Because there's something I think really helpful about not looking somebody in the eye as well and even doing walks together. Or if you can carve out five minutes of your day just to be present and have a conversation beyond especially like with loved ones beyond like the logistics of who's picking up the kids, like did we need to get the dishwasher fixed or whatever, those types of conversations, going a little bit deeper and even deeper with the people we don't know, even with the strangers. I really miss during the pandemic seeing like just people who I only knew their first names who would walk our dogs together on the block. When I think those casual interactions can be more meaningful if we pay a little bit more attention and are deliberate about it.
0: And so life is full of ups and downs and you talk about disappointment, but you talk about disappointment in the context of we can learn from disappointment. So can you unpack that?
1: I think there's a lot of pressure on us to be happy all the time or to not have any stress and smile. Everything's great. And, and we're almost intolerant of people's negative emotions. And we don't know how to process that or process our own. And I'd had a patient who whose grandmother had passed away and she was really grieving for a while. And she, this wasn't pathological grief, she was sad, but people sort of being like, bounce back, come back to it. And she felt quite guilty about that and not, and she was sort of re-imagining you know, imagining and putting in her brain that sense of her grandmother in the present tense, like, oh, I wanna call her to Oh, I, you know, putting her grandmother in the past tense. And I think that's what grieving is doing for us is. And so how do we use negative emotions as data? And I think when you feel like what's going on and you actually use that to help you re-goal in some way, how do I rethink what I have? Am I angry? Am I frustrated? What is going on here? Because I think negative emotions often kind of just, we swim in them, we're awash in them. And if we can get a little bit more specific and granular about, okay, what am I actually feeling in this moment and drill down on what that is, then they'll feel less personal, they'll feel less pervasive, they feel less permanent, and we actually will be less paralyzed by them and also much more likely to take action. So I really like, it's almost like getting the thesaurus out and being like, okay, how am I feeling? Because otherwise that sort of negative thing might just, you might even not remember why you're in a bad mood. You're like, I think something happened or I got an annoying email earlier, but I don't even remember why or what. It's just that cloud of darkness that's hovering over you. And we know that when you are, when stuff sticks to you, that's like when you're more Velcro than Teflon, it's gonna be, how do you, the only way to get out of that is when you kind of find those uplifts, but also when you can sort of take that negative emotion, what's going on, why am I mad about this and what is upsetting me? Now, what can I do about it?
0: So you're such a great storyteller. And as I've said, the book is filled with so much research, so many great anecdotes. I'm curious on the research front, in in the writing process, was there research you came across where your jaw just dropped and said, "Wow"?
1: I mean, there's so much. I mean, I'm always staggered by how often, like, we know what to do for ourselves, and we yet we don't do it, and how often we get, you know, our well being wrong. Just, here's an example: the way we so often we don't express gratitude to people because we think they already know how grateful we are, or we're just like, oh, I can't find the words or it's going to be really awkward if I say that my grandfather knows, or my good friend knows. But actually, when you put that on paper, not only will they relish it, and they really don't care about your sort of perfect articulate letter that you're writing, they're going to feel great. And you will too, for a sustained period of time. Same thing with when we assume that people, if you give them $5 or $20, and you say, will you be happy if you spend this on yourself or someone else? People reliably get that one wrong as well. We think we'll be happier when we spend it on ourselves, but we always get a Bigger boost from spending it on others. And so there's so much that I think our brains just haven't caught up to our lifestyles in ways and where we are. And knowing this, how can we override it? And I sometimes say to people, be on you. Like, what's the opposite of the thing you feel like doing right now? Like, what would even what would somebody you admire do in this moment? Like, what would Jason do in this moment? Because you you might be like sort of in that darker place and when someone's always saying you like oh you have to be yourself at all times like when you're really stressed out you're that self that you might be making kind of bad choices or not looking for uplifts in, in your daily life and to think of somebody you admire and this isn't being like inauthentic it's actually getting you closer to the version of yourself you would like to be
0: i love that I also, I love the, I love your book. I love the closing of your book. I thought it was fascinating. So I'm going to read a couple sentences from the closing graph. Some wellness gurus have led us to believe that looking in the mirror is the best way to grow and cultivate vitality. Practicing psychiatry has shown me that we flourish more when we turn away from the mirror and look out the window. Even better, I hope that you'll throw open the door and venture out safely into the world. Wow, I read that as I that is such an interesting, I fascinating way to close the book. So how did you get there?
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for, for saying that. It was, I just thought in the embodied health, like when we're embodying our values. We are, I talk in the book about the three C's and that really are the essence of vitality. And when we're feeling connected with others, when we feel like we're contributing to something beyond ourselves and when we feel challenged in that positive way. And these are all, you know, outward oriented, other oriented, embodied experiences. And I think we're sometimes told that, oh, you've got to download happiness or you have to buy it or you have to go to a silent retreat and find it. And that self-immersion is, how you will discover who you are and and then you can go out into the world. But I think we've looked at it in this very either-or way. And I, I really think when you see it as a both and and you can sort of see your embodied well-being and your embodied vitality and your everyday, how you it's how you the actions you take and the connections you make and how you're participating rather than like retreating, that's where well-being lives.
0: It it feels like Wellness has become a little bit narcissistic, teeny bit.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I do. I actually <laughs> talk about there, that because it can become an excuse for narcissism and for retreating. And I had a patient who was gone to this wellness retreat and came back saying, well, I'm just going to focus on me now. And I've got to, I, I, and she would she wasn't going to a friend's like birthdays because it wasn't at the right vegan restaurant. And she was really withdrawing from her family and even her friends in this pursuit of wellness. And even the way we make gratitude so often all about ourselves. People mistakenly, if you like, make a gratitude list about, I'm grateful for this because it makes me feel this way. No, we got it wrong. Express gratitude to somebody else. And like, what do you appreciate about that person? And what do you appreciate about something? So I think we have to make gratitude also more other oriented and the self-immersion emphasis is actually really misleading and making us often unhappier.
0: And so how do we contribute more value to others, to society in a way that we benefit the world outside of ourselves, but at the same time, we feel the benefit of feeling good?
1: Well, that again, I mean, Another like like reliable antidote for stress is doing something for someone else. And I think we saw that a lot during the pandemic. And I hope it isn't catastrophe compassion that we saw in those moments of people caring about their neighbors for the first time, meeting their elderly neighbor for the first time and offering to go to, to CVS, but usually contributing to something. And it's not, it's in it when we're the sort of acts of kindness that aren't act, asked for in any way. When they're random, we're just, you are doing somebody a favor that's unprovoked or unasked for. And when you can create what's called like invisible support for somebody and it's anticipating their need. Like if your, you know, partner, you know, needs to drive someone the next, the, the next day, and then you're going to fill up the tank of, of gas the day before, like those little gestures and acts of kindness and love Are obviously good for the other person, but they're actually so powerful and they're real like they're they're powerful for us too, and they stay with us. And I think that sort of lingering, the lingering gift of altruism creates this buffer zone about just from some of those hassles and those annoyances that we can't control.
0: So a lot going on in the world. I'll timestamp this interview. It's you know we're talking on August 20th, around just coming up on noon. I'm curious, in closing, you know, what concerns you and on the flip side, you do believe in positive psychiatry, what excites you?
1: Yeah, I think what concerns me most, I think people are feeling kind of hopeless right now and there's a lot of bad news and feeling like you can't, you know, do anything and even we know from studies looking at people during the election in last November that when people are just so engaged in the national news and they're sort of armchair politicians, but locally they're not engaged at all, that they feel much worse. They don't even know who's running in their district. And so I think when we are embodying what we care about and what I've always asked patients to do is list what their top three values are and take some time thinking about it because it's something I think we don't think about enough. And then think about how you spend your free time. Often there's a gap between the two find more overlap in your everyday life. And that will really create like a, a buffer zone. And I think that if we can create for all of us, that will make us more resilient in our everyday lives and we'll have more little our resilience. So I'm concerned that people haven't been doing that. And I think that social media can suck us into that vortex of inaction. But then, I mean, I think what's exciting is there's a lot of research showing that there are these simple everyday things we can do that aren't expensive that aren't going to take huge amounts of time but we just have to be a little bit more deliberate about it and prioritize our connections how we're challenging ourselves how we're contributing to something beyond ourselves and the, the more we pay attention it's sort of like shining a spot like a, a flashlight in a dark room we can only shine it in the corners and see the cockroaches but we might be able to lift it up and see well, there's a window or maybe there's some art on the wall and Being deliberate about finding uplifts in our everyday lives and something that delights you is really going to create a buffer zone. And you're also gonna feel much more likely to take action and not just live in your head during stressful times, but also during good times.
0: Amen. Samantha, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Really, so good to see you.